Hey guys, I'm Steph and I want to welcome you to Killer State of Mind, the number one place to get your fix of serial killer info. So this is my first cast and I guess I'm gonna give you a little bit of information about myself. I'm originally from Philadelphia. I still live in PA, a little bit further away from where I grew up at. I am a true crime buff. I love everything serial killer. I think mainly it's more so about learning how their brain works for me, not necessarily idolizing them. I just like to know how they function. Today, I wanted to start with Gary Heidnick, and he is from Philadelphia, actually, and that's why I wanted to do my first podcast on this guy. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22nd in 1943. His parents were Michael and Ellen Heidnick, and he also had a brother named Terry Heidnick. His mother, Ellen, suffered from substance and alcohol use disorder. She spent a lot of times in and out of relationships. There were a few articles that said she had attempted suicide by intentional overdose multiple times. She did ultimately end her own life. His father, Michael, there wasn't a ton of information on his father. Eventually he remarried. It was said that he was severely abusive. Most reports state emotionally abusive, but I found a few reports that said he was also physically abusive. Ultimately, he did deny the allegations, but even his brother Terry made accusations of the physical abuse as well. So early on, when Michael was about two, that's when his brother was born. Just about a year later, the parents divorced. Shortly after the divorce, Gary and his brother went and stayed with their mother, and they stayed there for about five years. Now, during the time they spent there, Gary did fall 20 feet from a tree, and his brother reported that this resulted in a severe head injury gave him a misshapen head. It is believed that this may have been a contributing factor in his personality and violent tendencies. Just one of them. After that, they did go back to stay with their father and stayed there for the rest of his young life. As a child, and even into young adult life, Gary had a bedwetting issue called nocturnal enuresis. It was one of the things his father would berate him for. His father would make him hang his soiled sheets up in his bedroom window. On top of this, other abuse allegations were mentioned. His brother made an allegation that they were afraid of him. He said, quote, we'd be afraid to pick things up because he would beat us if we dropped something like a glass or something, quote. It was said that with the continuous abuse from his father, his stepmother even began abusing him as well. Hodnick's way of coping with the constant abuse was to isolate himself. He would either stay away from the house as much as possible or isolate in his room. A defense mechanism he had was creating fictional stories in his head. In his mind, he was superior to all others. He was also withdrawn. He was so withdrawn, he stopped talking to people. He even stopped making eye contact. Later in an interview, he said it wasn't worth talking to them or needing their approval, end quote. From his misshapen head, it was said that some children called him football head. The bullying also played another factor in his personality disorders and violent tendencies. He was very intelligent. 
He excelled academically, of course, when he put his mind to it. I found an article that said his IQ score was 148. And this was Commonwealth versus Gary Heineck. Appellate tests showed that number. At age 14, Heineck's father encouraged him to enroll at the Staunton Military Academy in Staunton, Virginia. He did enroll and attend for two years, but left and ended up re-enrolling in public school. He dropped out of school altogether at age 17 and joined the Army. Even with him dropping out, one of his sergeants in the Army called him an excellent student. So after he joined the Army and completed basic training, he applied for multiple specialist positions, including military police, but he was ultimately rejected. He was sent to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a medic and did good through this training. He wasn't there long though before being transferred to the 48th Army Surgical Hospital in Landstahl, Germany. Just a few weeks after arriving in Germany, Heidnick earned his GED. Even though he excelled in his position, being rejected by the military police really did stick with him. He later reported that he never truly felt he had honor. He said, quote, I was just a man doing my job, nothing more, end quote. Which, I mean, to me, this is odd because we know that he has this God complex, this, you know, he's better than everyone. So the fact that he just felt like a man doing his job is kind of like, oh, okay. Maybe because he hadn't gotten the position that he felt like he deserved, so he just felt like a man. I'm not sure, but I just think it's odd that, again, just felt like a man doing his job. Later in 1962, things began to change. In August of that year, Heidnick admitted himself to the hospital with complaints of severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, and nausea. He initially was diagnosed with gastroenteritis. While there, he was also seen by a neurologist. This neurologist stated he was showing signs of mental illness. At that time, the neurologist prescribed him an antipsychotic. This medication was called Stelazine and is typically used to treat anxiety and psychotic disorders. Within two months of him reporting to that hospital in Germany, he was transferred back to Philadelphia and admitted to a military hospital where he saw another neurologist. This doctor gave him a definitive diagnosis of schizoid personality disorder. After these hospital stays, the army gave him an honorable discharge. This was said to be a result of his mental conditions. It was unclear on whether he continued to take the stelazine. I'm thinking he did not. If you look back and see what he did and all of the crimes that he committed, you might also agree. Not long after his discharge, he decided he wanted to be a nurse. So that's just what he did. And this is crazy to me because today you have to jump through so many hoops to become a nurse. He became a licensed practical nurse. He also enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania, only to drop out after one semester though. He took a job as a nurse at a Veterans Administrative Hospital in Coatesville, but ultimately was fired shortly after due to poor attendance and mistreating the patients. It was said he was emotionally and even physically abusing the patients there. So in 1970, his mother's health deteriorated. She was quickly declining 
physically and mentally. On top of her addiction, she was diagnosed with bone cancer. After a couple of unsuccessful attempts to take her own life, multiple hospital stays, and continued addiction, she did end her own life. She did so by drinking mercuric chloride. Even though he brushed it off, his mother's death had taken a toll on him immensely. He was profoundly bothered by his inability to keep a job, having a social life, and adding the death of his mother. This is when he made his first attempt at ending his own life, but he was found and taken to the hospital. Now, I'm not exactly sure who found him. I'm not sure if he did this in a public place or at his home, but he was found and someone took him to the hospital. It is reported that up until his execution, he attempted at least a dozen more times to take his own life. Like Heidnick, his brother also made many attempts to end his life. It was reported that both of them had been in and out of mental hospitals throughout their adult life. About a year after his first suicide attempt in 1971, he decided he was going to start a church. Oh, so God complex even more. The church was called United Church of the Ministers of God. Needless to say, this was not your typical congregation. <laughs> I would think not. In his church, he held all power over literally everything the power of veto so no matter what the board voted if he did not completely agree with the decision he could overrule it also again here we are power control superiority he felt like he was so much better than the rest of the board that what they said didn't matter if he didn't agree it wasn't happening he gave himself the title leader of life he described himself as the church's duly elected bishop. I found a quick excerpt from the church's constitution that said, quote, The duties of the bishop are many and his control extensively. He is the final word on interpretation of the Bible. His was the final word and settling of religious disputes except for divine intervention. He will usually be able to act even without consent or notification of the five-person board of directors, end quote. It seems like at that time he had started to have grandiose delusions and everything with the church just made this a reality for him. It made his power, his God complex, it made this come true for him. It gave him the ability to exert control over everything. At the time, Heidnick could not afford to purchase a property for this church, so he ran it out of his house. This home was on the 4700 block of Cedar Ave in Philly. With the money he made from previous jobs and the income the church brought, he was able to sell his first home and purchase a second one. So I found some articles that said Heinick had invested $1,500 into this church, and by the time he was incarcerated, it was found that the church had made a revenue of $500,000. So that's, that's a pretty, pretty decent amount of money for a church that he was running out of his home. He moved into the new home and moved the mother of his first child in there also. This was a mentally disabled woman named Anjanette Davidson. It's said that he rented two of the three-story house while he and Anjanette lived on the third. So now I'm gonna kinda go into his crimes. In 1976, Heinick attacked one of the tenants in the house. The report said he shot at the tenant and grazed his face. 
There really wasn't anything said exactly why he shot at him, but he was charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed gun. I feel like those convictions are much less than they would be today. Shooting someone in the face? At least assault with a deadly weapon, if not a, a more a, a worse charge. I don't that uh -huh, that's crazy to me. I couldn't find any information on what his sentence was on this at all. So in 1978, his first child was born. He and Anjanette named this baby Maxine. This child was removed by Children's Services immediately due to the mother's mental disabilities. I know that also Heidnik had some mental disabilities that were documented. I just didn't see that they said it was also because of him. They just said that it was due to Anjanette's disabilities. The same year his first daughter was born is the same year he committed his second crime. He signed Anjanette's mentally disabled sister up from Penn Township Mental Institute for a day pass. And trigger warning here, I'm going to be mentioning sexual assault, kidnap, and some other content that might be upsetting. So just wanted to let you guys know if you want to kind of skip past this part because this goes on throughout the rest of the story, unfortunately. He held her captive in a storage room in her basement. And when they found her, they did an exam on her and it was found that Heidnik had sodomized and raped her. They also found she had contracted an STD. Sad. I, I mean, just, just, just sad. Heidnik was charged and convicted of kidnap, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person, which I think he should have done much longer than what he actually got. Because for these convictions, he was given a sentence of three to seven years in prison, but his original sentence was overturned in an appeal. And he only served a total of five. And three of those were spent in a mental institution. So again, he kind of like got away with not being punished to the fullest extent for a horrendous crime. After his release from prison, he met a Filipina woman named Betty Disto through a mail order bride program. The two exchanged letters for two years before she came to America to stay with him. In 1984, Heinick sold his second house and purchased a third property. Heinick and Betty lived together in this home during their very short marriage. This marriage came to an end when Betty accused Heinick of assaulting and raping her. He was arrested and charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. The charges were dropped when she failed to show for court. She left and had fled back to the Philippines with the help of the Philippine community in January of 1986. He was not aware that she went back to the Philippines until she went after him for child support for the baby that she gave birth to in September of 1986, nine months after she left him. After this marriage ended, he had gotten into another relationship with another mentally disabled woman. 
Her name was Gail Linco, and Gail was the mother of his third child. That child was named Gary Jr., and I could not find his exact date of birth, but I want to say potentially around the same time that Betty's son was born, since she had left him in the beginning of 86, and Betty's son was born in September. So I'm thinking that since his crimes started in November of that year, this child is potentially born September, maybe October. This child was removed by Children's Services just like the first one, due to the mother's mental disabilities. I couldn't find much other information on this woman or their relationship. In 1986, after many failed relationships, Heidnik started paying for sex. This began the final spiral into him kidnapping, raping, and even murdering his victims. There was six victims total in this last crime, and he did murder two of them. These victims were all African-American women, and some of them were mentally disabled. His victims were Josefina Rivera, age 25, and she was kidnapped on November 25th of 1986. Sandra Lindsay, age 24, she was kidnapped on December 3rd of 1986. Lisa Thomas, she was 19. She was kidnapped on December 23rd of 1986. Deborah Dudley, age 23. She was kidnapped on January 2nd of 1987. Jacqueline Askins, she was 18. She was kidnapped on January 18th of 1987. And his final victim was Agnes Adams, and she was 24 years old. She was kidnapped on the night of March 23rd in 1987, and she escaped the very next day. I'm going to get into that, how it was that happened with all the other women being there for so long and her only being there for a day. There were many interviews done with Josefina and a few with Jackie regarding their experience in the basement. One interview I found with Josefina, she was describing the day she met Heinick and how she ended up in his basement. She reported meeting him and going back to his house to engage in sexual intercourse. She said, quote, There wasn't anything out of the ordinary except for that he had change around the bottom of his walls, like coins. In the kitchen, he had, like, pennies stuck to the walls, and the dining room had nickels, dimes, and quarters. Then going up the stairs, he had like dollar bills, fives, tens, and twenties, like wallpaper. But aside from that, nothing different, end quote. She reported getting upstairs and having sex with him. And as she was getting dressed, he came up behind her and started choking her. She said, quote, I came to with him putting me in a hole in the basement. He was pushing me in there and I was like folded up because I didn't really fit. He just kept telling me to shut up. Then once I was in there, covered the hole, end quote. Josefina went on to share about the horrors her and the other girls experienced in the basement. When reporters asked how long that first day she had been left in the hole, she said about 24 hours. She said he only came down because, quote, I just kept yelling. He pulled her out of the hole and beat her with a stick and then, quote, threw me back in the hole, end quote. When reporters asked her how long she had been in the basement alone before another girl was brought down, she said she thought it had only been a day or two. I can understand this. You have no way to tell what time it is. You have no way to see if it's daytime or nighttime. 
you know, I, so I completely understand. So on December 3rd, 1986, Sandra Lindsay was kidnapped and Josephina said she remembers hearing a woman crying. She also said she heard Heidnick saying, quote, stop crying, Sandra, you know I'm not going to hurt you, end quote. She reported being pulled out of the hole and, quote, he introduced us to each other like we were neighbors, end quote. I, like, wait, what? What? So they were neighbors. Okay, sure. Whatever you say, Heidnick. Since Sandra passed away in the basement, I only have interviews from Josephina and Jackie to account for what happened to her in the basement. For about 20 days, the two women were alone down there. And on December 23rd in 1986, Heidnick kidnapped a woman named Lisa Thomas. I cannot find any interviews with her, so there is no definitive account on her personal experience. I couldn't even imagine what each of these girls went through separately. So I completely understand her not wanting to give an interview. Not long after Lisa's abduction, on January 2nd of 87, Heidnick abducted another woman named Deborah Dudley. Deborah Dudley also passed away in the basement. So just 16 days after he abducted Deborah on January 18th of that year, he abducted another woman named Jacqueline Askins the only other victim to give her account on what happened in the basement. There was one last victim Heidnick abducted. Her name was Agnes Adams, and she was abducted on March 23rd. I couldn't find much on her in general, but it did appear that she escaped the same day or the next morning of her abduction. So for a while, there were five women that were held captive together. It was reported Heidnick raped, beat, starved, and tortured all of the women while they were in captivity. It was also said he would pit the women against one another. Overall, it seemed like Josephina was the one who he left in charge. He pulled her out of the hole and chained her up elsewhere in the basement and he actually told her, watch over them. Josephina told reporters at the Inquirer that he was not on a mission to kill, but he wanted children and a lot of them. She said, quote, he was trying to get everyone pregnant, end quote. He would rip all the women every day on an air mattress in the basement. But as if this was going to make anything any better, he saved the women he thought were pregnant for last. Again, I don't know that he thought this was sparing them of any pain or what, but dude, you're a piece of shit. So there's that. He made them all watch as he assaulted the others one at a time. It was said that he would blare music all hours of the day and night on the other floors of the house to muffle the screams of the women. At some point, Josephina made a promise to herself, saying, quote, my main focus was to get out of there alive and get the others out of there alive, end quote. I believe that Heidnick left her in charge because she had been there the longest, but this also led the others to believe that she was Heidnick's partner and not just his captive. So as I mentioned before, the first woman to pass away in the basement was Sandra. 
Josefina and Jackie reported that Heidnik chained her up to a beam in the basement by her wrists. It was said this was her punishment for refusing to eat. Josefina said, quote, Sandra had a problem with her jaw. They weren't aligned right, so it was a struggle every time she ate. One day, he came down and tried to feed her. Her breathing slowed. She appeared sick and malnourished, end quote. She also said he was trying to get her to eat. He was beating her with a stick. She started choking, and Heidnik said, quote, Oh, man, end quote. He then went upstairs to get his key to take off the handcuffs. When he did, her body slammed on the cement, and Josefina said it sounded like wham. She was dead. Josefina went on to say, quote, I was heartbroken. Me and Sandra were close. We spent so many hours down in the hole, end quote. He took her upstairs, and the girls reported hearing a chainsaw. Jackie reported Heidnik took her upstairs and made her also make a cut in Sandra's arm with the chainsaw. And he told her, we all need to be a part of this. It was also said he took Deborah Dudley upstairs and was showing her Sandra's body. He told her, this could be you next if you don't get it together. At one point, he put her head in a pot and fucking cooked it. He put her ribs in the oven and baked them. Now, I'm not sure if he actually ate her body parts, but I know that he forced the girls to eat her body parts. His neighbors called authorities when they smelled this horrific smell coming from his house. And when the police got there, he told them he burned a roast and they believed him and did nothing, nothing else. Which, this is kind of crazy to me because I have friends in law enforcement and they have said that death has a smell like nothing else. So unless these officers had never been to a crime scene where someone was dead or had any experience, Dealing with the smell of death, they should have known what that smell was. So like I said before, Heidnik would feed parts of Sandy to the other girls. He would actually mix up her body in dog food with a meat grinder and feed it to the other women. He later told Josefina he got the idea from a comedy called Eating Raul. Me and my friend Wave decided that we're going to watch that at some point soon. So I, I just, this is supposed to be a comedy also, so I'm not sure what, no, no, I am sure. Heidnik was a sick bastard. Now, the second woman to pass away in the basement was Deborah. Josefina and Jackie reported Heidnik put her in the hole with water in it and then covered it. He then took an electrical cord that he stripped and touched her chains with the cord and then also made Josefina do the same. This was another thing that made the other girls believe Josefina was not only a captive but also his partner. Jackie reported seeing Josefina do it last. 
So she said, quote, she killed her. And a lot of the stuff she did, she didn't have to do. It was like she was living out her serial killer ideal, too. End quote. Heidnick made Josefina sign a confession letter saying her and Heidnick killed Deborah together. And her agreeing to sign this letter got her free from her chains. Heidnick took Deborah's body out to the pine bearings and buried her there. He took Josefina with him when he did so. And she shared what she heard while this was happening. Quote, I heard him pull the plastic off Deborah's body, and I could hear the thump of her body. I could hear him walk away with the body, crunch, crunch, crunch of the leaves, the twigs breaking, end quote. There were now three women left in the basement at the time of Deborah's death. Josephina reported doing everything that she did so she could gain his trust, and she did just that. She gained enough of his trust that he started letting her upstairs and began opening up to her more and more. She said, quote, he really thought I was on his side and I really wanted to make sure he thought that. This was my way out, end quote. She also said she believed if she ran while out with him that he would just kill the other girls. She said, quote, there wasn't an opportunity for me to run. If I had done that, he would have killed the other girls. He wasn't going to leave nothing for anyone to find, end quote. Heinick told Josefina that if she helped him abduct another woman, she would be allowed to see her family. So that's what she did. Her and Heinick did kidnap a woman named Agnes Adams. He went downstairs with her and he put her in the hole. Now, as promised, Heidnick did allow Josefina to see her family. She thought to herself this was her chance. He took her to the area her family lived in and she had him drop her off near Six and Gerard. She promised she would return in 25 minutes. As he pulled off, she ran to the nearest payphone and called the police. At first, the police were taken aback and had trouble believing her. She told reporters they thought it was so far-fetched. She said, quote, they thought it could just be someone upset with their old man, end quote. To prove herself, she showed them her scars. She then informed them of the location of the house and where the other women were being kept. When the police arrived at his house and found the other women, two of them were chained up and the other woman was found in the hole which was covered with a piece of plywood. So this was on March 24th. He was apprehended. Then at his arraignment, he tried to say the women were already in the basement when he purchased the property, which I don't know that's crazy to me because if I bought a house that had women locked in the basement, I would call the authorities. <clears throat> but that's just me. So, you know, we're dealing with a psycho here. His trial, his attorney attempted to say that he was legally and clinically insane. But ultimately, the prosecution successfully shut that down. 
They used testimony from Robert Kirkpatrick regarding the account he had opened for the church, showing he was competent enough to handle finances. Kirkpatrick said, quote, Heidnick was an astute investor and knew exactly what he was doing, end quote. During the investigation, when the authorities were going through Heidnick's home, they found 27 pounds of body parts inside of his freezer. So this, along with the testimony of the surviving victims, was the nail in his coffin. One of the girls said during the trial he would not look at them. He would not make eye contact with anyone at all. On July 1st in 1988, a jury in the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia convicted Heidnick of two counts of first-degree murder, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggravated assault, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual assault. The same jury sentenced Heidnick to death. While in prison in 1989, Heidnick attempted suicide again. This, I think, was his attempt to get his way, kind of get what he wanted, because after all the verdict motions were argued and subsequently denied, the courts again sentenced him to death. Heidnick expressed a desire to have his execution done as soon as possible, That did not happen, though he tried to end it himself. In 1997, Heidnick's daughter Maxine White and his ex-wife Betty filed suit in federal court seeking a stay of execution on the basis that he was not, in fact, competent to be executed. Okay, so we think that he's competent for trial, and this has been proven, but we don't think he's competent to die? That's confusing to me, but okay. Anyway, it was too little too late because just two years later, on July 3rd in 1999, the U.S. District Court issued its final ruling thus clearing the way for Heidnick to be put to death. And he was subsequently executed by lethal injection on July 6th of 1999 at the State Correctional Institute Rockview in Center County. Jackie, Sandra's family, and Deborah's family attended the execution. Jackie said in an interview with Oxygen, Quote, I went to the execution, but it was too calm and serene for me. I'm thinking execution is something like, turn around and let me shoot you. Instead, they just stuck a needle in his arm, end quote. At a later interview, Jackie said she wanted to be the last thing he saw before he died. And she said, quote, and I made sure of that. I actually also found out that... Heidnick was the last person in the state of Pennsylvania to be put to death as of today. I found that a bit interesting, just kind of tidbit to add in there. And that is the case of Gary Heidnick and also the first case for Killer State of Mind podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening and I hope you guys enjoyed that. There will be many more to come. If you like this one and you want to hear some other true crime stories and even some abandoned stories, 
you can head on over to The Dreadful Diaries and listen to my friends and I talk about other true crimes and some abandoned places that we visited. So again, I want to thank you for listening. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Killer State of Mind. You can send me an email at killerstateofmind at gmail.com. And you can message me on Facebook at facebook.com slash killerstateofmind. That's it for tonight, guys. I'm out. Bye.